and it's such a romantic ingredient to work with too. I mean, if you tell someone that you make chocolate, nine out of ten people go, "Wow, chocolate! I never met anyone that makes chocolate for a living." This is the producers. I'm Danny Valant. Pastry chef, chocolatier, and chocolate maker Dennis Karacha is so embedded in the world of chocolate that he sees it as part of him. It's his identity and passion. It's who he is. But chocolate has also pushed Dennis to question, explore, and change as he's transitioned from creative patissier to craft producer. Cuvée Chocolate, his bean-to-bar operation on the outskirts of Melbourne, has ethics at its foundation and unique flavour and texture as its goal. My name is Dennis Crutcher. I am a pastry chef and a former pastry chef, and I'm also the chocolate maker and owner of Cuvée Chocolate. Um, Cuvée Chocolate is we're based in Caram Downs, which is just on the outside sort of fringe of Melbourne, southern suburbs. Um, we make chocolate bean-to-bar, which means we bring in cocoa beans, we roast them, we crush them, and we make chocolate what I consider the old-school way. Um, stone ground, crunched for up to eight to nine days. Um, our goal or our aim for our chocolate is, A, to be the best chocolate you can buy Australian-made, so produce a quality top-shelf um, uh, produce, um, but also do it as ethical and as sustainably as possible. I always like the artistry side of chocolate. So um, actually not just using it as an ingredient as in, you know, put a couple of hundred grams in a brownie recipe or making a big chocolate mud cake, but do things that are really appealing. And I always had a flair for for art and for painting, that sort of a thing. So it was a good way of expressing, I, I guess, my creativity in, in my work. So um, I took great interest in making little sculptures out of chocolate and um, at the time we did little model figurines that's a big part of German patisserie um, mazipan and chocolate figurines so that was probably the, the, the part of working with chocolate that really drew me in Dennis grew up in a small town in Germany in a family where food was a site of connection and enjoyment when it was time to choose a career the decision wasn't difficult so I was born in Germany, a small town called Göttingen. Not many people know it unless you have to study physics. Um, started my apprenticeship when I was 16 um, as a pastry chef. I was always very interested in food, and cooking and baking in particular. And I guess a lot of that comes from my grandma who always baked with us when we were kids. So that, that sort of sparked my first interest in, in the subject. Um, did my apprenticeship for three years as this... Um, sort of standard over there. Um, as part of my apprenticeship in pastry, chocolate was a big chunk of it. Um, the, the, the pastry shop that I did my apprenticeship is a very old, um, very well-established patisserie. When I was actually there, they actually celebrated their 125th anniversary. Um, and they had a really big chocolate um, department um, up, up above the patisserie. And it would be um, common practice for the apprentices to go and spend at least six months up there to learn how to work with chocolate, um, how to make pralines, truffles, and that sort of thing. But you actually never got to make chocolate. You, um, chocolate is always looked up on as more of a raw material, I guess, is a good way of putting it, by pastry chefs. It's something we get already basically semi-finished, so in, in either block or button form. I think my love of chocolate really started off um, 
because the apprenticeship that I'd done it was it was one of those old school apprenticeships, right? It was um, it was getting up early in the morning, working long days, working six days a week. It was it was tough, and and I'll be honest, the head chefs and, and the, the sort of senior chefs they were all really tough old school guys too, and um. Actually, the guy that run the, the chocolate section at the time that participated, he was one of those, I want to say, almost fatherly figures. He really took us under his wings. So I think I almost have to blame him to some degree for my passion in chocolate because I really enjoyed just working with him and because he was the guy that that looked after everything chocolate in the business. Um it sort of was the material or the the substance that I was more in, most interested in, and um, just out of because it was the most enjoyable part of my job at the time. And once you get to spend a lot of time with anything, I think you you get to learn more about it. You learn more about its background or its um, its history, and you get more involved with it. I guess I, I continued after my apprenticeship for another year or so there, um, then went on to work in a couple of different restaurants. Um, in Germany at the time, we had something they called um, compulsory army service, I guess. So I did that for a few months. And then I thought um, it was time to travel. Um, travel didn't quite go ahead straight away, though, because I also managed to get a scholarship from the German government to do actually my master's in patisserie. So that's something I've done then before. So that took about a year. I went to a patisserie school in Cologne for that. Um, and after I finished my master's, um, I still had sort of the idea that I really want to get out and see a bit of the world. So I joined a cruise ship and started traveling the world, um, working as a pastry chef. When you're a young chef wanting to open the world up for experience and adventure, cruise ships often seem to beckon. But what's life actually like on a huge floating hotel? Anyone that ever worked on a cruise ship sort of knows how it works. To the to the layman's, it's um, usually when you join a cruise ship, you do a four to six month co- contract. So you, you work four to six months basically every day, um, depending on the, the the cruise line and where you're sailing, between twelve to sixteen hours a day. And and the the, the idea is then you do four months six months and you get two months off and then you do another four to six months so I've done my first contract what they call it um, and I actually did end up doing seven and a half months because my replacement kept getting re- delayed um, it's tough it's it's um, it's probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done in my life and even today when you um, meet someone in the kitchen and you find out that they worked on a cruise ship there's that immediate bond that you have with that person because you know that guy knows how to work. Otherwise, he wouldn't have survived longer than a week. And we would get a lot of people, you know, jump on the ship, um, start working, and then after a couple of weeks go, this is not for me. This is just a little bit too much. Um, In saying that, probably some of the best times I had in my career. It was that that sort of – I don't want to call the brotherhood because there's a lot of sisters there too, but um, that um, that bond that you have with your fellow workers because you literally work every day and you literally work every day the whole day. So it's a 12 to 16-hour shift depending on how busy you are. Um, so it's something really special. And um, I learned a lot of things that – I don't want to say I didn't learn a lot about food because food is obviously a very important part um, – of working in the kitchen, but I think the most 
I got out of it was life experience and and the skill of working with people um, under pressure, under immense pressure. For so many Europeans who end up down under, Australia is a mystery. They're not sure what to expect. What is it like to land here as a qualified and talented practitioner, but with no experience in local kitchen culture? Well, how did I end up in Australia? I met an Australian girl on the, on the ship. Um, we um, On the ship, there's not much you can do, as in you work, and usually in the evening there's a gym or there's a crew bar. So it depends on <laughs> where you're at in your life or in, in your week. Um, those are the two, two locations you will shoot for after work and um, I met Carly my wife um, probably five or six months into my first contract and um, yeah we, we started dating our first date was actually in New York um, second date I think was in Canada that's a, the nice thing about working on a cruise ship you can go on fancy dates and it cost you almost nothing um, and at the end of our second contract, we actually both decided we had enough of ship life. It's getting a bit hard. I mean, it's very hard as a single, let alone when you try to be in a relationship working, you know, different roster or different hours and, and those 12 to 16-hour shifts. So we decided um, it was time to leave the ship and it was either Germany or Australia. Um, I was wanting to travel anyway. It was one of the reasons why I joined the ship. So to me, there was there's no no question about it. I'm going to give Australia a shot, and I've um, been here ever since and and loving it. Starting off as a chef in Australia, it it was is quite challenging. I'll be honest. Um, having worked in Germany before and then on a cruise ship, where you know um, HR is not really something we do a lot in, especially not in the ship, neither in Australia uh, in, in Germany. Um, it is it is a very rough environment, sort of thing. You you used to speak your mind, and um, you, you don't really worry about someone's feelings in the heat of the moment when you go through service or um, just during busy times. So I had to sort of, uh, I want to say I had to re reassess the way I approach my work and also the way I re, um, approach my co-workers because I was just used to telling people something and they'd do it. And um, here you had to be a bit more democratic about how you um, talk to your staff, I guess. So it took me a while to get my head around that. Um, also took me a while to get my head around ingredients, um, especially for pastry chefs. We're quite, um, we're quite scientific in our approach and recipes are quite exact and we rely a lot on, on the ingredients being being right. So when you bring a recipe, let's say, from, from Germany or on a ship, we had a lot of um, U.S. ingredient-based recipes, to Australia, they often don't quite work. So what I'm talking about is differences in flour, differences in sugars. Um, in Australia, we tend to get cane sugar, while in Europe, we get beet sugar. So they have um, a very different way of reacting. Um, chocolates, the chocolate is um, usually – Chocolate that you would buy here in Australia was Belgium or French, so it's one of the bigger brands. Um, while in Germany, we, we use German chocolate, and on the ship, we often use Swiss chocolate. So, um, yeah, from those two angles, I guess, your approach with people, because Australians are a bit more easier, easier going and a bit more um, relaxed when it comes to their work approach than Europeans, perhaps, as a thumb rule, not always, not everyone, and, and the ingredients, for sure. Chocolate is simple but also complicated. It's malleable, but also requires rigor, 
What elements drew Dennis in and kept him engaged? I always worked with chocolate. So since I started, it was always um, my... Probably the ingredient that I felt most passionate about, as in uh, to the degree that when, whenever I would work in the kitchen, some of the, the hot kitchen chefs would joke about, you know, is there any dessert that we have on the menu that doesn't have any chocolate in it? And really looking into it, people would often ask me, hey, where do you get the chocolate from? Or how do you make your chocolate? Because people just assume that chocolate is often, or often assume that chocolate is made in the kitchen, especially when you work um, in a chocolaterie. And I've done that. Um, I worked in a couple of chocolate places in Melbourne before I sort of went back into restaurants and catering and, and hotels. And it's just a general assumption. People think, well, you're a chocolate shop you must make chocolate, which is actually not, um, more often than not, not the case. And there, it's it's really different to differentiate between a chocolatier and a chocolate maker. So a chocolatier traditionally is a person that makes wonderful things with chocolate. So there are all these um, beautiful shops that you see, you know, when you go to Belgium, to Antwerp, and you go um, through town, you see all these chocolatiers. I want to say 90% of them actually don't make chocolate. They're... Um, buy chocolate and make truffles, pralines, um, cakes, all sorts, tarons, all sorts of beautiful things out of chocolate. And, and that's wonderful because um, it's actually quite quite a skill and quite a craft in itself working with chocolate. And then there's the chocolate makers. So they're the guys that actually get the cocoa beans, they roast them according to different flavor profiles. They, they crush them down into cocoa nibs and then they um, – grind them, refine them, and then conch them into chocolate. So very different from the two. And I always was a pastry chef and chocolatier. So if you look at my trade certificate, uh, my qualification, it says pastry chef, chocolatier. There's actually no apprenticeship for chocolate making. So it's something we cover in our apprenticeship, I guess, in, in trade school briefly. So as you go, we learn – we spent probably three months talking about chocolate in trade school doing my apprenticeship. So that, that was sort of my relationship with chocolate. I used it as a raw material. I sort of understood sort of where it came from, as in most people know most chocolate comes from South America, which most cocoa comes from South America, or think that, which is actually not true. Um, and, and then it somehow goes to Belgium or Switzerland or France in one of, two, one of those chocolate-making places, and then it comes to us. And that was my understanding of chocolate. Um, and that was really the case until just trying to think when the, when was the first time I actually tried a Bath Craft chocolate. I think it was like in 2013. I went to um, to Paris, and um, at that time, Alain Ducasse had just opened his um, Bean to Bar place, and um, he bought at the time a whole lot of really really old chocolate machines. Um, and started making his own chocolate. And I walked into the shop and I tried some of his chocolates and it was nothing like I've ever tasted before. It was, you know, when you walk into a chocolaterie, it, it often smells sweet and maybe a little bit chocolatey, but it's nothing compared to what you smelled when you walked into his shop. Like the moment you walked into, you knew these guys were making chocolate. There was no two questions about it. It was just that really intense cocoa, that, that smell of freshly baked brownies. I, I can't even explain it. If you ever go to Paris, please make sure you go to the store. Um, and that's when I realized 
that I did not know a lot about chocolate at all. I didn't know just about everything there was um, uh, about how to work with chocolate. But um, if I, if someone gave me a bag of cocoa beans and said, here, make something with it, I wouldn't have known. And that, that bothered me um, because it was the ingredients that I felt most passionate about. Most chocolatiers don't actually make chocolate. They start with a refined commodity that's travelled far from the farms, usually in West Africa, where the cocoa beans were grown. At a certain point, thinking about the origins of cocoa and the possibilities of chocolate brought up so many questions for Dennis that he had to begin to answer them for himself. So I wanted to know more and I started looking into how chocolate is made and I really discovered that it's incredibly hard to actually make chocolate from scratch and that was to big part because of the fact that there was just no machinery for small-scale chocolate making. So even when you went to the Dakar store, he had these huge old German machines <coughs> that were made clearly at the time when chocolate manufacturers, which were at that state time um, considered large-scale, were a lot smaller than they are now. And even those machines were humongous. Like I'm talking a machine that would take over probably 10, 12 square meters of any kitchen. Um, so I started looking into what was what was required, and I sort of thought, oh, well, it's, it's quite unrealistic, um, A, from a machinery point of view, but also having access to cocoa. Um, as some people may know, co cocoa is actually um, a commodity product, so it's sold mainly in the commodity market, and um, it's very hard to find beans, or at that stage it was very hard to find beans um, that were not sold through the commodity market and where quality actually was a focus on, and especially in, in smaller quantity. Um, so I sort of parked the idea, probably not parked the idea, but I, I parked the idea of maybe wanting to make my own chocolate, but I thought, well, I'll, 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 I'll do some research on it, and I, I kept doing that. So I, I, I kept up to date with what was happening in the, very small emerging craft chocolate market that was at that time really in Europe and perhaps a little bit in the US. And um, I went on to do my thing. I, 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 at that 2013, when we went to Paris, I actually did a competition there, the, um, the World Chocolate Masters. Um, did the competition, went back to Australia. One of my um, competition themes was, um, one of the things that I did during my competition was um, abroad in um, the idea of matching chocolate with wine. Um, reason for that was the, the competition organizers asked everyone competing to bring one thing or at least one ingredient that represented the country that they represented. So for me, that was Australia. I was representing Australia. Um, and what competitors in the past always had done, they would bring something something native, like, a, I don't know, like lemon myrtle or macadamias or wattle seeds. That was sort of the, 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 common, the common theme. And I thought, well, I want to do something a bit differently because it's all been done. Native ingredients at that stage had been exhausted at that competition level. So I thought, well, Australia is really an emerging wine country. I mean, the wine industry is quite old in Australia, but as far as Europe is, was, is and was concerned, we're basically non-existent. So, um, I <clears throat> I thought, well, how great would it be if I, I could convince one of the major winemakers or one of the flagship winemakers in Australia to um, 
work together on a range of desserts that is matched to their to their wine. And um, we ended up working with Penfolds and took their grain range to the competition and matched it um, with all of our desserts. And people loved it. What came out of that is when we came back to Australia, um, a couple of winery owner friends that I had at the time seen what I was done doing a competition said, hey, do you want to do a wine pairing chocolate matching event for us you know it, it seemed to have worked really well in, in France um, people are a bit over cheese and wine tastings if we want to offer something different um, be happy to do it and <clears throat> so we did a couple of those we went to Heathcote did a winemakers event there um, and matched, uh, matched chocolate so what I did at that time I created recipes for chocolate bars that I thought would go well or pair well with wines. And because of the lack of machinery, the lack of access to beans, what it was at the time, I did what I knew to do. Um, I combined cocoa liquors and cover juice and sort of out of what was already available, created chocolate bars that had a flavor profile that would pair well. And out of that came people tasting that chocolate and going, oh, that tastes really great. Um, where do you sell it? We didn't sell it at the time. So we started – that was really the origins of Cuvée. That was when we started making chocolate from – at the time from my house. <clears throat> Sorry. And we were living in Seaford at the time. So I, I got in touch with the local council. We got um, a little back room in the house turned into a little chocolate kitchen. They came and gave us a seal of approval, so it was all food safe and that. And we started making chocolate blocks to be paired with wine from cocoa liquors, cover juice, and um, cocoa mess that we would buy and, um, and started selling it. There are only about 30 bean-to-bar chocolate makers in Australia. Dennis shares his own story of becoming a true maker of the product, which he has devoted his life to. So we, we've done that. We, we've didn't done the blending, I guess. So what I would really call it, um, the chocolate blending for about, oh, I want to say a year or so, before we really started thinking about, or, uh, not before we started thinking about, but when we really made a decision on saying, hey, we need to make our own chocolate. What did that, what, how did that idea get triggered? Um, it was really – I had done a trip to Ghana at the time with one of the prominent um, uh, chocolate importers here in Australia, a, a Belgian company. And it was, it was a really great trip because they showed us around. It was the first time that I actually saw a cocoa tree in, in real life, the first time I could talk to farmers, the first time we actually seen how cocoa is grown, harvested, processed. And, and what I did see was that although there were some fantastic people working in, in those on those farms, and most of them were small families um, on, on those plantations. Um, it was almost like it was like a tour of the best they can show you, if that makes sense. So it was, this is what we do, and if you ask too many questions, don't worry about that sort of a thing. So it was transparent without being transparent, I want to call it. Um, came back and sort of just thought about how did Coco really get – how really does cocoa really come to us? What's the channels? And um, I mean, it's, if you're really interested, it's only a Google search away, and you just um, done a great article on it, Danny. But um, once you start looking into it, it becomes quite troubling. Now, I thought it was a bit 
not kosher in Ghana. And Ghana is actually one of the better countries uh, in, in West Africa that produce cocoa. If you think about, if you compare the Ivory Coast, for example, to Ghana, it's quite troubling. So I came back with the thought, well, A, I don't really know where my chocolate has come from. Um, a lot of it has come from because um, it's just they don't tell you. So you can assume fairly safely assume it's either on the Ivory Coast or Ghana because they're the main. I think they at the moment combined they produce something like 70 or 75% of the entire um, cocoa harvest in the world. So the first thing we did was up in return, we went to single origin. So everything that we used was a single origin and we, we con- made a conscious effort of avoiding countries that would lack complete transparency. Um, so we, we started buying Tanzanian cocoa liquor or coverture and uh, stuff from Ecuador and Cuba and countries where there was a little bit more transparency, but still not full transparency by any means. You knew now the country, but you didn't know anything about the plantation, nothing about the farmer, nothing about the people involved. Um, so that was one major point for us to rethink what we're doing. The other part was um, flavor and quality. Um, what I found was there's more and more chocolatiers popping up left, right, and center, really, in Melbourne or in Australia in general. And they all use those same basic ingredients. They all started with the same products as, as the chocolate manufacturer sells go up, so did our competition you know, increase. And so that people produce very similar things to what we did because we really, other than blending the ingredients together, didn't have really much input. So put these two things together, it's – I want to say about 14 or 15 months after starting Cavay, we sat down and I had to make my case to Kylie, who's not only my wife, but also my business partner. And I said to her, I think we need to spend significant amount of money on machines and we have to go out and find um, supplies for cocoa beans because we need to do A, things differently um, so we can actually provide a product that is sustainably sourced. With such a long and complex supply chain, it's hard to be sure of the source and ethics of cocoa products. The industry is implicated in child labour and even slavery, with rich corporations shielding themselves behind platitudes and gestures. Well, the first thing you find out when you when you start looking into cocoa production worldwide is A, that most of the cocoa actually doesn't come from South America, it comes from West Africa. Two countries in particular, Ghana and the Ivory Coast. What you also then find out is that there's a significant amount of children involved in the harvesting and processing of cocoa in those countries. And I'm not talking about um, children just helping their family on the farm. But what, I, what you actually do find out is that, that kids as young as eight or nine are removed from their families, sometimes removed from their countries, um, to then work on cocoa farms, often unpaid, often doing um, – labor that is potentially harmful to them. And um, what you also will find out is that most cocoa um, importers and chocolate manufacturers, and I'm talking the big boys, know perfectly well about it and just don't do anything about it. Um, so you get sta- you, not only do you get standardized answers, but you get answers like, well, there's nothing we can do. The The alternative would not to not make chocolate. And you sort of look at that and go, well, that's not really good enough. Well, we're talking about companies that make billions of dollars of profit. And at the same time, they turn around and say to us that they can't do anything about changing the industry in those countries. And and 
I guess my answer to that was, well, there is something you can do to change about it. That's if you buy the cocoa as direct as possible, you forego these these major corporations and start making your own product. So that's what we did. We started um, getting our feelers out, trying to find people. I'll try to get in contact. The first thing, I guess, was get in contact with other small chocolate craft makers that already were um, <clears throat> making the chocolate from scratch. Um, and to our f- great fortune at that time, and this is going back probably 2015, 16, there was a emerging market of chocolate makers in the United States, which is probably now still now the, the, the biggest market for craft chocolate. And there, there – they did something that I want to call they, they, they leveled the, the, the way for us to, to follow. So they, they, they went out there, they found small cocoa plantations that were able either to sell directly or through through wholesalers that, that or retailers that um, offer full transparency. So we took that route. We um, The first company we ever approached was uh, Coca Camellia in Tanzania. Which is a it's it's a business that basically does central fermenting on behalf of of local farmers and um, through this central fermenting offers a higher grade quality cocoa, but also enables farmers to sell the cocoa quicker and at a higher price. Um, We got in touch with them. Turns out it's not quite economical to. uh, freight 500 kilograms of cocoa and that was at that time for us we thought a lot from Tanzania to to Australia so they got us in touch with a great company uh, um, in the Netherlands called Silver Cocoa and what Silver does or did or does still is they do a lot of the groundwork for ch- small chocolate makers so Silver realized that um, a lot of small craft chocolate makers don't have the time don't have the money to travel to each of their origin country to make sure everything is above board and everything is done properly from a sustainable and ethical point of view so Silver does that and there's many others there's a um, Meridian Cocoa in, in America that does a similar thing these guys basically what they do is they have um, cocoa sources that travel around the globe, talk to farmers, um, and then import that co- those cocoa beans directly from, from those farmers or from those fermentaries, pay them directly um, a premium price, which is more often than not three to four times above the commodity, uh, more than the commodity price, and then supply chocolate makers like us with, with cocoa beans. And I always remember a famous quote, a friend of mine, um, Paul Kennedy from um, Saber School at the time, told me, he got, he, we, were, we were both judging a competition in Sydney, and he, he asked me, how's your business going, Dennis? And I go, yeah, it's going well. And I said to him, look, I'm um, looking into going bean to bar, because I think um, it, it's the only way to, to know that A, your chocolate is yours, and, uh, and B, that you know where it's come from. He goes, good, be a maker, not a melter. Our chocolate is very unique to what we do, and it's an expression of really myself as a chocolate maker. Um, I don't think you can achieve that when you melt chocolate. A cancer diagnosis was life-changing in many ways for Dennis and his wife and business partner, Kylie. All their sometime plans became now imperatives, and a tree change also turned into an unlikely second career as a cattle farmer. So... Late 2014, I was um, diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
So, um, which I don't know. Most of you would probably be familiar with, but I did wasn't at the time. It's a it's a blood blood cancer basically. Um, came as a bit of a surprise. I was I was always really fit. You know, I never had any health problems whatsoever. Um, so it was a bit of a shock to the system. And what that really do, do, done is after oh, six or seven months of, of chemotherapy treatment, we, Carly and I sit down, we re-evaluated. I had always very stressful jobs, um, always worked very long hours, and we decided as a couple we need to make changes because um, what that really does, it hits, it's, it hits home quite a bit, and you realize that life can be short. Um, we don't live forever. So – we always had that dream of one day moving to the country. Um, Carly's dad had a farm somewhere out near Seymour, um, and we would go, I don't know, once a month, spend the weekend. We would always come back and look at real estate um, pages and look at farms around, but we always like, oh, one day, one day. Um, and what really came out of that experience was that one day became, it needs to be today. And really... Uh, what came for me out of that whole experience was uh, I don't delay things anymore. If I want to do something, I'll do it now because there's no better day than today because you don't know what's tomorrow, right? So we went on to a mission of spending at least every second weekend away to find the ultimate area of where we wanted to eventually one day settle. So we done a few weekend trips, eventually found the region of South Gippsland. And the, the moment we drove through South Gippsland, we immediately fell in love. It actually reminded me a lot of Germany. It's very green, um, very high rainfall, um, a lot of pine forests, a lot of cattle, a lot of cows, a lot of dairies. So we decided that that was our area, found a block um, just outside of um, um, a little town called Foster near Minyan, which is um, about 30 k's in from Wilson's Prom. Um, had a look around, met the real estate agent, made an offer that day. Um, didn't really know what we got ourselves into, to be honest. Um, we just thought, oh, well, it's great. You know, you got all these rolling green hills, big paddocks. Um, it's going to be amazing just sitting in the paddocks and sipping a glass of rosé on a you know, spring afternoon. The um, eight weeks fast forward, settlement date came. The real estate agent met us at the farm for a final walk around. And um, as we sort of said our goodbyes, he turned around and he goes, so what are you going to run here? And... I looked at him a bit quizzed and puzzled because I didn't know what he was talking about. And Kylie looked at me in horror because she knew exactly what he was talking about. And I go, I don't know. What do you mean? He goes, well, you're going to have to buy some sort of livestock because um, you've got a hundred odd acres of prime grazing country here. Um, if you don't put any animals on there, it's going to be a jungle in no time. And that's when Kylie's face returned because I sort of rushed into this whole thing. Um, thought it was a good idea. And I just said, cattle not knowing really a thing about cattle, as in I did not even know what the difference was a heifer or was between a heifer and a cow. So we settled, had 100 acres of, as mentioned, prime grazing country in South Gippsland, and we had to make a call. Um, I started looking up some cattle breeds, um, again, not knowing at all what I was doing, and what I came across was um, Scottish Highlands which are a bit of a rare breed. I think they're just made of the rare breed status in Australia, but they're still not seen around a lot. Um, pick those because they're a bit smaller. They're 
tend to have better temperament, according to my research at the time. And the other big thing was we wanted to breed cattle. Oh, at that time, I already decided I wanted to breed cattle about a week in. Um, and they're actually really good at um, carving on their own. So they, they have something that's something considered carving is in the cattle world. Um, their calves are quite small and fast growing. So they usually don't need assistance. So before we know, we had two heifers and a little steer running around our 100 acres. Soon realized that wasn't near enough to keep that under control. Um, Five years in, we got now, I think we got just over 50 highlands now and about 20 commercial cattle. So we got about 70 head of cattle here. Um, learned a lot in the last five years, more by error than anything. You make a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but yeah, loving it. Wouldn't go back. We'd, we'd sell a little bit of our beef, not, but not a lot. Most of it just goes to family and friends. And um, the people appreciate it. And it's, it's something... If you haven't tasted beef farmed that way, I'm going to say you never tasted real beef. The 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 feedback that we get from from friends, family, and also our customers that we do sell beef from is that is beef like I remember my grandpa's roast, you know, back in the days. That is, it tastes like meat. And just to give you an idea about the Highlands too, Scottish Highlands are a very slow maturing breed. That means um, the steers don't really get to a slaughter weight until they're three to four years old. So just as in comparison, an Angus steer you probably would send to the abattoir at 18 to 24 months. These guys really get to live quite a long life considering they're beef animals. And our cows are here for life. I mean, we, we are stud breeders, so all our cows have names. Um, our oldest cow, Finola, she's 20. She had a calf last year. So they're part of the family. We spend a lot of time with them. Um, and it's it's really that 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 whole idea about everything food for me that I want to know how things are done, where they're from, and and that everything is done in the most. And I I don't want to use the word sustainable too much because sustainable. What does sustainable really mean? Um, it's it's a word that gets thrown a lot around, but um, that it's really done in a good way. That, that I can look at it and go, yeah, I'm happy with that. Chocolate has taken Dennis around the world. It's been stimulating, enriching, provoking and satisfying. What is it he loves about the world of chocolate? What I love most about chocolate, um, I love eating it, I'll be honest. It's a bit of a selfish act being a chocolate maker. Um, and I, I, th- I think I said it before, but chocolate's really part of me now and it's it's part of our life like um we i, I know cuvee is a business but it's you know it's almost like a like a, like our child it's something we talk about a lot and um, i guess working with your partner in the business makes that a bit more that case too it's it's just something i feel very strongly about and it's it's hard it's it's like why do you love your child you know i don't know you love it because it's it's yours and, and that's how i feel about chocolate chocolate is what what has really accompanied me for now um what am I now 38 I start my apprenticeship was 16 so that's most of my life really more I have spent more time thinking and working with and about chocolate than I have not so I think with like with anything it becomes part of you you start feeling very strongly about it um what I do like about working with chocolate is it's 
versatility. There's just so much you can do with it. And it's, I really like that it's such a simple ingredient because, I mean, you look at dark chocolate in a nutshell, it's two ingredients, sugar and cocoa. Um, but it's so complicated. And it's every, it, it seems so easy. I mean, it's not as easy as just melting chocolate down and, and, and pouring into something and letting it set. Anyone that ever tried that will, will tell you how that can go wrong. Um, yeah, I, I think I like this the simplicity of chocolate while still being so complicated and being and I don't know and it's such such a romantic ingredient to work with too. I mean, if you tell someone that you make chocolate, the first, nine out of ten people go, "Wow, chocolate! I never met anyone that makes chocolate for a living." It's it's different, you know. It's um, and I mean, no offense to plumbers and and, and I don't know chippies and electricians, and, but it's 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 a bit of a, a talking point at a party for sure. If you tell someone you chocolate maker, you you you'd be quite popular for a couple of hours there for sure. Dennis Karachas Cuve is a culmination of a long journey, encompassing his values, appreciation for growers, and a continual striving for quality and identity in a product that is often sold as a commodity and eaten as a sugar-laden cheap treat. His chocolate is made with passion, pride and care and is appreciated by chefs, connoisseurs and thoughtful buyers who appreciate transparency. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.